0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode number two of Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host, Gavin Rice, and I want to share what I've learned in aviation and encountered on the job, off the job, and everywhere in between. For this episode, I've titled it Mess of a Two-Day, and this is just a a little story about a two-day trip that happened, uh, I want to say it was about a month ago now. So right now with my schedule, I'm, I'm on reserve, which means uh, I wait for the company to call me to help cover some flying. I'm going to go into more depth on my life on reserve in another episode, but uh, some ways that I can pick up some extra flying is to pick it up on open time when they have extra flying for us, uh, whether or not someone leaves the company and that leaves a bunch of trips left open for other people to pick up or uh, for some other reason. So this one two day trip I picked up, I'd seen on the schedule, and I really wanted it because it had a captain assigned to it that I had met when I went on a jump seat uh, flight observing coming back from another work assignment, I think it was. But uh, it turned out one of my friends was was operating the flight, and then uh, so I got to, to watch him fly and then also fly with this, uh, meet this really cool captain. And so I, I saw that he was on this trip, and I said, you know what, I, I'd love to pick that up and, and fly with this guy. So that's the main reason why I picked it up. Uh, but anyway, about this trip, it was it was supposed to be a, a two-day and it went like this. It started with a deadhead from Boston to Richmond. And for those of you who don't know, a deadhead is essentially when you sit as a passenger. Uh, you got a seat, confirmed seat in the back, and you're getting paid for that in order to relocate you as a crew member to the next place you need to be to operate the next flight. So Again, it started with a deadhead Boston to Richmond, and then it was supposed to be Richmond back to Boston, and then the last leg was going to be Boston to LaGuardia, overnight in LaGuardia, and then day two was going to be LaGuardia to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh back to LaGuardia, and LaGuardia back to Boston. So, not a very complicated trip. It wasn't high credit at all, but for me being on reserve, that didn't really matter much for me. Uh, in terms of of pay i was just looking to have a good time do some flying and and uh hang out with this this captain that i'd already met leading right up to the trip i had noticed that the captain was changed and that that was a bummer because you know I was, I was looking forward forward to flying with this guy but uh, that kind of thing happens all the time reassignments happen captains get shifted all around for for different flying so uh, anyway, I, I noticed that the new captain, uh, let's just call him Smith for, you know, for example, um, he was, uh, the one he was assigned was, uh, he was on the, on that deadhead with the rest of us, the two flight tents, myself on that deadhead to come to Richmond from, from Boston to Richmond. And so he was on that flight. I said, cool, I guess I'll be, I'll be flying with him back to Boston. And then we were going to pick up, um, once we got back to Boston, pick up another captain to go to LaGuardia. But when we got there, uh, my phone had been in airplane mode for the flight, and when we landed there, the I, I looked at my my application that, that shows me all the the crew details and whatnot. And I noticed his name was gone. I said, "Huh, that, that's pretty weird." And now there was a different captain on the schedule for this flight back to boston and it turns out it was the captain who had brought that plane to to richmond the plane that we were on Uh, instead of them being done for the day in richmond uh, this captain was going to come with us back to boston so that was just interesting to see all those changes so last minute which, you know, it can happen uh, again with, uh, and I'll talk about this in, in another episode, but with the captain shortages we, we have going on right now, it just, it makes sense. Changes happen all the time to scheduling, and it can be up to last minute scheduling. We'll, we'll call you and re you, so. But anyway, so this captain who was supposed to be done for the day in Richmond, um, once the, the everyone deplaned, uh, I got up and I, I chatted with him for a little bit, and what he was saying is, Although he was within contract obligation in terms of his duty limits, um, how much time we're allowed to be at work essentially, he had been awake since 3 a.m. He, he'd been working the morning shift and it, at this time it was about uh, 1700 or, or 5 p.m. He was already in the mind frame of, of getting to that hotel and getting some sleep because he was tired. It's been a long day. So he told me if there were any delays going back to Boston that he would, he would have to call out fatigue. Uh, because it just it wasn't going to work for him he'd been awake for way too long Sure enough, we got an EDICT, uh, an edict, an EDCT. What that stands for is an Estimated Departure Clearance Time. And, and essentially, for those of you who don't know, that's when air traffic control will issue a specific time slot for you to leave your airport in order to get into your, your destination airport. So a lot of times in the Northeast, uh, <laughs> the running joke is if there's a, a single cloud over New York's airspace, you know, everything just shuts down and delays and Uh, to an extent that can can be pretty true it's it's pretty wild what will happen so sure enough we did in fact get an edict it just would have been too long of a delay i think it was going to delay us another half hour or or an hour or so so this this captain was like you know what although i'm within contract i I just need to call it to fatigue so uh so now i'm here thinking to myself all right what the heck was scheduling thinking you know i in that moment i was like oh man they, they should have just used that original captain had they known that the captain we were supposed to work with now was going to call out fatigue that you know they, they should have just kept with the original assignment uh but now that he called out fatigue he left he said good luck you're in charge now um so essentially with the chain of command uh obviously goes captain then the first officer and then the a flight attendant the b flight attendant so now that there's no captain, it's it's up to me to figure out what's going on. So essentially at that point, uh, our flight, uh, let's see, we'd, we'd gotten into Richmond at, at 1700, like I said, and I think we were originally scheduled to leave around 1930, uh, 7.30 p.m. for you non-24-hour clock users. But it uh, obviously we weren't, we weren't going to be going anywhere without a captain, so I was kind of in a phone call loop with with dispatch and scheduling to figure out what the heck's going on. Do we have another captain coming? And uh, at this point, it was now 8 o'clock, 20.00. And again, we were originally supposed to leave at 19.30. So just a couple phone calls back and forth with scheduling. They called me back and they said, hey, we've we've finally got a captain, but he'll be arriving at 23.00, 11.00 p.m. So when he arrives you know that that's his aircraft incoming aircraft so realistically we wouldn't depart until 11 30 so so yay <laughs> to to add to it the scheduled told the scheduler told me that the captain hadn't even been notified of this change because he was en route uh so wow now <laughs> that captain could also fall call out fatigue um but thank goodness uh that captain did take the assignment. And um, interestingly enough, though, in Richmond, the, the two terminals, I think they just call it the A and B terminal, they're split up. So if, if you needed to go from Terminal A to B, you'd have to clear the secure area and come back through and and, and go through TSA security. Uh, but because it was so late at night, the airport operations actually had to do something special for him where they, they actually drove a, drove a car uh, to go meet him at the plane uh, and bring him over to our plane. So. Uh, A little bit of extra work had to be done there, but uh, luckily we did finally get our captain. So finally, after a five-plus hour wait, uh, I coordinated with the gate agent to have all the passengers boarded and the plane ready to go so that when the captain arrived, we could literally just close the doors and and, and be on our way. It all worked out, and this, this captain did not call out, so we... We were finally able to depart and and go on our way towards Boston, and a, a little side note to the uh, the gate agent there, um, oh, she was so she was so good. Uh, she you know was coming back and forth a couple times, uh, and, and I was going up to up the jet bridge up to the the check-in area, or, or the uh, the gate area there too, uh, just to give her updates as I as I saw fit. But oh, bless her, she was she was just so patient because you know. <laughs> Any type of delay at any port, any airport, there's always going to be people who, you know, they're trying to get home, they're trying to get to their business meetings or whatever, and and so any type of delay is just going to leave people um, on edge, you know, and so just hats off to her, uh, I forget what her name was, but to the gate agent in Richmond, uh, thank you so much for all your patience with those people because uh, that was that was quite a crazy night. So anyway. Now we finally departed, and we were on our way to Boston. Uh, since it was so late, we were so delayed, our last leg to LaGuardia was then given to another crew, another plane. So now we were actually going to spend the night in Boston. Uh, mind you, that Boston is it's our home base, so scheduling didn't automatically give us a hotel room, which, depending on the length of the overnight, uh, wouldn't be a bad thing given that I commute, you know, I drive into Boston. Many people don't actually live in the base that they live at, so they're gonna need a hotel. And, and luckily, our contract says that if you're in the middle of your trip uh, and you are gonna overnight in your base, you know, because that wasn't originally planned, you you will indeed get get a hotel. And originally, we were supposed to have about a 15-hour overnight in Laguardia, and. I think it was now down to about that minimum 10-hour uh, overnight time. So I really did want that hotel because my drive, depending on traffic, it can be anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour to, to drive out of Boston. So really wanted that hotel um, so that you know I only had more than just eight hours at home, for example. But since that wasn't originally on the schedule, we had to make another phone call with scheduling uh, to make sure we were all set, and um, it was kind of weird because because that's not... Part of our trip, we just had to kind of write down the hotel information, make sure we were going to the correct hotel because I think there there are a couple Boston hotels that our, our crews will use. Um, so just a little confusing, but luckily the, one of the flight attendants was uh, really on top of it. She had all the hotel information, so she was she was handling all that. So. Uh, got to our our minimum rest it was kind of a bummer because when I see a a 15 hour overnight on my schedule I'm like oh okay you know I have opportunity to to walk around or or maybe check things out or or at least at a bare minimum just go work out go to the gym um, just get some some good exercise in from from uh, you know just just to blow off some steam so to speak so uh, but now with a a quick 10 hour overnight it's it's kind of like you get to your hotel room you You get undressed and you just kind of plop on the bed and you go to bed and then you wake up and you feel groggy because you didn't get as much sleep as you wanted to. So 10 hour overnights are are not my favorite at all. (laughs) But uh, anyway, the the next morning we got up and it was, again, the original uh, frame of the the trip was supposed to be uh, overnighting in LaGuardia. But since we were in Boston, our first leg started with a deadhead. So this was uneventful. The flight attendants and I made it to LaGuardia, and we finally met up the captain, who was supposed to start the trip originally. Again, he was he was the replacement for the original original captain I really wanted to fly with. But uh, we we did meet up with him. At this point, there was a lot of low low cloud action going on in the Northeast. We had this big system uh, kind of socking in the entire Northeast. So I I had a feeling that things would probably get a little bit interesting, but. To my surprise, we got out of LaGuardia no problem and made it on our way towards Pittsburgh. And what was really nice is that all that weather that was kind of socked in was really over the entire New York and, and Boston uh, area. But as we went west towards Pittsburgh, uh, things just kind of opened up and it was completely sunny out and it was just beautiful. So we, we left behind all that, the soup behind us and, and it was just a nice sunny day. So as, as we're setting up for the arrival. Pittsburgh, uh, for those of you who have never been into Pittsburgh, they have three parallel runways uh, and they were doing visual approaches landing to the west. So approach control asked us, I forget which runway we were set up for, but they asked us to find a small business jet in order to get the visual approach clearance. So there's a couple ways that they can give us this clearance which uh, an approach clearance allows us to then descend towards the runway and normally we would need the either the, the field in sight and or a, the plane that we're supposed to be following on the approach. So we, we had the, the field in sight. It was, uh, again, a crystal clear sunny day. But then uh, they, they told us to look for this small little jet. And it, for those of you who, who have flying experience or have seen an airplane out, out the window, it, they're, they're small. They're hard to see, um, especially during the daytime when you know you have different... Reflections going on, glare everywhere, and it's just, it's tricky to see, especially, you know, we're in this concentrated mode where, you know, 10 miles out from landing and, uh, you know, the, the, the workload is really high. And now we got to look for this tiny jet in order to clear the approach. Um, so the captain was the pilot flying. And um, we finally did see the jet. And I, I think I actually had, had seen it. And I, I told the captain, yep, he's right there. I don't know if you got it, but I'll keep an eye on him for him b- before he established that contra- uh, the visual contact. Because you know, at this point, we were starting to get a little high and he really needed to get down. So we were, we were coming in a little high. And luckily at this point, um, my experience has gotten to the point where just kind of taking all the information in, um, there's a lot of different little tips and tricks you can do with a jet Um, so unlike flying a piston aircraft with a propeller in front of it a jet is just very sleek it does not want to slow down Uh, unlike a a propeller driven aircraft you can you can chop the power to idle and it just kind of acts like sort of an air brake Uh, there's just a lot of drag but a jet is just really sleek so in order to help come down and slow down you know we were pretty far out i think about 10 miles but since we were higher i was like hey do you want the gear and so he said yep gear down and we're, we're coming in still a little fast a little high i honestly thought he probably would have it um but in a very calm and methodical kind of voice he said i think i'd, I'd like to go around and try again uh no use in pushing it and i i said yep sounds good and he started the procedure uh, my mind started racing a little bit because the last time I did an actual go-around in the jet was never. <laughs> That's right, I'd, I'd actually, th- this was going to be my first go-around in the actual jet. And the, the last time I'd done it in a training environment was eight months, uh, seven or eight months ago prior. So, um, you know, we, we, we go over these procedures all the time. We're studying our manuals, but you're not doing it every single day because it's it's an abnormal procedure. I mean, how often have you ever been On an airliner and you're coming into land and then you go around it doesn't happen all that often so uh, it's just something abnormal nothing that you know is unsafe by any means it just again adds to that workload so everything is fine in the go-around our procedure we we call uh, go around Um, and, and the jet that I fly we we call out for togo which is the takeoff go around thrust setting for the engines and then uh, flaps two so um, bring our flaps from full or, or well in this case um flaps to five and and, and goes up to two so uh, go around togo flaps two and then uh positive rate gear up and we start cleaning everything up um so again we were, were doing an I. it was it was a visual approach but it was backed by an ils so on our our uh our, our FMS or flight management system and, and our needles they were they were green they were following the instrument landing system the ILS, um, and on the go around, you know initially it's it's go around Togo flaps two, we we get the gear up, um, and then we need some sort of lateral navigation because when we press the the go around mode and uh, our and the Embraer jet that I fly it, it has it goes into a lateral, um, uh the, the takeoff go around mode so you're your lateral navigation is just a track, just a straight track from where you currently were. So now we need a lateral navigation, and for the the missed approach procedure, it'd be good to just follow what is on there until air traffic control gives us something else. So the captain calls out for FMS nav, so flight management system navigation, essentially going back to, to pink or magenta needles in order to follow to our our published missed approach fix so th- again this ensures that our our needles get out of the approach or, or in this case the go around mode and, and into our our gps navigation mode so the call out is literally fms nav and i did not press fms i just hit nav first and what that did is it didn't give me the correct uh, needles that i wanted Uh, It it reverted it back to the ILS. And so all of a sudden, now we're just kind of getting behind. Uh, And when something so small so, so quickly happens, it's not a big deal, but it can really cause you to get behind the airplane really quickly. Because in a jet, you're flying fast, I mean, really fast, and things just happen all of a sudden. So that caused a distraction, and very quickly, we over, well, we didn't overspeed it, but we, we came close to overspeeding the flaps because in that whole moment of me pressing the wrong button, the captain trying to figure out what the hell I just did wrong, <laughs> um, we, we lost track of, oh, we need to start retracting the flaps, and we were about to level off. And luckily, the uh, air traffic control gave us a heading, and we sorted it out. Uh, we got the gear and the flaps up, but we got all configured and, and everything was was totally fine with that. Again, it was a safe, totally safe situation. It was just one of those oopsie doopsie kind of moments where I pressed the wrong stinking button and it just caused you know a, a little bit more stress in that moment. But again, a, a very safe outcome. Um, and, and this is what's so great about crew resource management. We're working together to solve the problem. And so, uh, once we, we leveled out, we, we were given a heading. I think we were at two or 3,000 feet or so coming back around, and he just told me to make a passenger announcement. So I said, uh, I don't know, folks from the flight deck, you probably noticed we didn't exactly land on that attempt. Air traffic control didn't properly separate us from another aircraft, so we elected for a safer attempt. We're circling back around. We'll be on the ground in five minutes. Thanks for your patience. So it, it was something like that. Um, and and we, we did exactly that. We, we made a, saf- a safe landing and, and got to the gate. And uh, everything after that, it was just totally normal. Let's, we got the, the parking checklist was complete. Before we opened the door, um, the captain said, hey, let's let's debrief what happened. And I, I wholeheartedly agreed. I mean, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, our, our debrief just pretty much boiled down to my mistake uh, with the wrong selection of the buttons. Because, again, it's that one tiny little thing that could lead to a bunch of other things going wrong, but we we assured ourselves that we did the right and safe thing. I mean, no no procedures were busted. Uh, there were no limitations that were exceeded or anything like that. There was there was no situation that was unsafe, and, and and that was kind of one of the main takeaway points from this little debrief facilitated debrief is that we we were safe, uh, and that's why we have the training that we have is that you know sometimes we're not doing these procedures all the time, but because we can rely on that really good training. That we we do know what to do in the event that something like this comes up. So again, it was a really good debrief, and, and that's what I absolutely love about this job is the the ability to just talk to someone in a professional way um, and not have any hard feelings about it. Because I definitely know there there's some some professions, some people, and even within aviation too, that you know it's my way or the highway or whatever. But the the environment that we have. Uh, up front in the, in the flight deck is, is all about just talk about it, you know, just discuss it. And if there's anything that, you know, we can do better next time, you know, just just talk about it, just debrief what happened. And so that was just a, a really great uh, learning moment for me, uh, in addition to just having a great conversation with, with uh, someone who had has some really good experience. So, but again, everything was fine. Those passengers deplaned. Uh, I think we got to keep that plane. So we stayed on and then uh, pretty quickly thereafter, we had the next batch of passengers getting on, and now it was my turn to fly the leg and go back to LaGuardia. So at this time, the weather was still absolutely socked in in LaGuardia, and at uh, New York's LaGuardia Airport, they were doing the ILS to runway 4 approach. So the the weather was basically at the minimums for that approach, so for most standard ILS. Again, ILS stands for instrument landing system. For those standard approaches here in the U.S., uh, it spits you out about 200, your minimums are at 200 feet above the ground. Um, and your your runway visual range, or RVR, essentially your your um, your, your visibility at the surface of the runway there uh, at a lot of approaches needs to be um, about half a mile visibility, 2, 2,400 feet. Uh, sometimes they, they are lower or higher depending on the approach. But uh, one one of the interesting notes on this approach plate is that you are it, it tells you you're not allowed to fly an autopilot-coupled approach. So this means that for the last five miles of the approach, from the final approach fix and inbound, you have to hand-fly the sucker, <laughs> So which it's fun. It, it really is fun to hand-fly a plane, um, but it's a, little, a lot less stressful and, and, honestly, much more fun if you're in visual conditions. Um, and, and visual approaches I, I like to hand-fly from... Five to ten miles out, anyway, just because it's good to to keep up the practice with hand flying the plane. But when you're in some thick soup, um, it's it's turbulent. It's you're getting rocked about. Uh, that kind of situation, it's nice to have the autopilot. And, and in addition to, we were we were flying this approach a little bit faster than normal, because when the temperature is close to freezing we have to account for the potential for icing. So we have something called the ice protection stall speeds. So essentially that that's gonna increase our approach speed on, on the approach in order to account for any accumulation of ice on the wings that would increase our stall speed. So we, we don't wanna stall, so we're gonna, gonna increase the approach speed. So you're coming in faster, and now we're in, in the soup, we're getting bumped about. So an autopilot would come in very handy. Um, so in this situation, I couldn't use it <laughs> for those of you who've, who've never sat up front in a plane when you're going in and out of the clouds it's it's pretty amazing how disorienting the experience can be um, and what's happening is your inner ear your body just has no idea what's going on because we're as humans we're very visual creatures and if, if it's a, cre- a clear sunny day and we're, we're going for a flight and we look outside and, you know we have the horizon as a reference point uh, even at nighttime, if if there are enough horizon cues it's it's pretty it's fairly straightforward to kind of keep your bearings but as soon as you're in the clouds you just you have no idea what's going on um, when you're maintaining straight and level flight you know there, there are slight little bumps here and there that can kind of tease your inner ear into thinking that you've turned or rolled or or pitched up or down way more than you actually have. So your inner ear is is constantly trying to tell your brain, "Hey, we're upside down or we're sideways. We're doing this, we're doing that." Uh, when in reality you're you're not at all. And so I in in this approach, I have done a few approaches like this where your your inner ear is really playing tricks with you and you you just have to go back to uh, I had to keep reminding myself of my instrument tra- of my instrument training, and and when I was an instructor, teaching students instrument flying, and, and that's the golden rule is always trust your instruments, no matter what, they are correct, um, and. You know even if one is out you've got backup instruments there's there's so much redundancy that okay your instruments are gonna keep you straight and level or, or on the correct approach path that you need to be at so I kept having to tell myself okay we're we're good we're good we're, we're on the approach everything looks good uh, but my that was it was a pretty wild experience to just have to fight uh, my brain and just tell myself yep just keep these needles lined up You're you're gonna be fine so we uh, kept going on the approach the captain called out approach lights. I said continuing. Uh, when we see the approach lights, that allows me to actually go all the way down to 100 feet above touchdown zone elevation uh, until I see a runway cue. Um, and then he called out the uh, runway in sight, and I said landing. And then boom! So it's it's pretty wild going from a you know a small piston aircraft where we fly our approaches at at 100 knots. Um, and then as soon as we've got the runway environment site, we're, we're pretty much bringing the power back to idle and we're going back to our landing speed of somewhere around 60 to 70 knots. Uh, but in a jet, we're keeping that approach speed in this case, uh, for this example, 140 knots. And you're, you're staying all that, that, that fast speed with the, especially with the ice speed. So you're, you see the runway in sight, you're landing, but you're still going that fast. And so everything just happens so much quicker. So it's pretty wild that, you know, Approach lights continuing, runway site landing. I mean, that, that all happens, and then the touchdown, it's all happening in a matter of seconds. So it's it's pretty wild, um, but it, it's a lot of fun. It really is. So again, we, we, uh, we were able to land, we made it, and all was well, uh, other than just fighting my brain uh, to, to keep the plane just on the, the, the needles. Um, it, it was it was an, un- an uneventful leg compared to the previous leg with that go-around. So at this point... It was starting to get dark in LaGuardia, and now it was time for our go-home leg back to Boston, so typically we we uh, take turns flying, and so it was now going to be the, the captain's turn to, to fly us back home. So again, it was starting to get dark, it was still really thick with fog, and the weather in Boston was right on the cusp of those Category 1 minimums. So with a Category 1 ILS, uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's it gets you to... Uh, about two hundred feet above the ground, with half a mile of visibility or so, and it was right on the edge of that. It was maybe you could do a category one, but you might have to do a category two. So a category two allows us to get down to about a hundred feet above the ground, but it's really about the uh, the visibility requirements. So. Uh, which again, it depends on on the approach and, and where you're at, but it, it allows you to get down uh, lower with with uh, you know lower cloud deck, lower visibility, to come into land. So, category two in terms of you know setting up the the airplane and everything, it's it still flies the same ILS in terms of programming it. We have a different approach plate, which tells us the minimums are different, and and the concept of it is is pretty straightforward actually. So how it goes is the first officer will actually fly the plane with the autopilot on, specifically with the autopilot on. So um, essentially, when, you're, when you have the autopilot on, you're, you're mostly just monitoring your instruments. But essentially, what, what I'd do is we, uh, since it was the captain's leg, hand the controls back over to me uh, as the first officer, and, and I'd be on the controls, kind of hovering on the controls. Um, and my, my one job is I have the sole intention of going around red at minimums so once minimums are called out if i don't hear anything from the captain i'm going to call it go around togo flaps two, and we'll we'll go on out of there and we'll, we'll figure out whether we have to divert to another airport or try again if the weather got better so that's my only job is come in as if we're going to land and just go around the captain's job is they're going to look outside and once that landing environment is in sight they'll actually bump the first officer's hand off the throttle and just call out landing and, and at that point, my hands are off the controls, and and I let the master do the work, so to speak. So, again, our minimums for the CAT-2 approach were, uh, on this particular approach, I think it was about 100 feet above the ground. So, uh, at about 150, 160 feet uh, above the ground on this particular approach, the, the captain saw those approach lights, and we were able to land safely. So, again, I'm, I was hovering, I was getting ready to go around, but kind of out of my periphery, I saw some approach lights. He said, yep, I got it, and he got it bumps my hand off and I just kind of take my hands off the controls and then and then quickly transfers to his controls he does the landing and then I'm doing the rest of my my call outs as we touch down you know 80 knots 60 knots you know and uh, then we exit the runway and and that's it everything was fine so uh, you know we landed safely we got to our gate and and it was just kind of a wild experience. Um, that this was supposed to just be a, a pretty straightforward two-day trip that, again, I had, I had originally picked up to fly with uh, a cool guy that I had met and uh, turned into just a crazy, just a, a crazy two-day trip. Uh, and it was exhausting. You know, it, If you look at actual time worked, it was probably less than 10 hours over the course of two days. But it, it was just exhausting because so much happened in those, in those two days. Anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of my, my, my story, my, my quick little story for today's episode is just talking about this, this crazy two day, uh, two day, two day trip that we had. And, um, and, and that's, what's really wild about this job is that you never know what's going to get thrown at you. Um, you, you might have a plan to, to have a good trip, you know, with the attitude of, I'm going to have a great trip. We're going to do this. We're going to have this overnight and, and things can just change out of nowhere. Um, and, and that's one of the things I really like about the job though, is that you know, I'm, I'm constantly meeting new people. I'm, I'm flying with different people. I, I have great conversations and great experiences and I'm, and I'm picking up all these different tips and tricks for that people have for, for flying the aircraft. And, uh, and that's, that's what's, that's what it's all about. You know, I, uh, I get to look out the window and, and, and watch stuff on the ground but then I, you know I get to fly a, an 80,000 pound jet and I have a blast doing it so anyway that that's uh, that's pretty much the story for for this episode. I do want to dive into what it's like to be on reserve and, and talk a little bit more about how scheduling works in the airlines and so for the next episode that's that's what I'm going to dive into and uh, but for now thanks uh, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Clever takeoff. Stay tuned for next week's episode where I dive into schedules, specifically with reserve life. And until then, as always, fly safe.